What's good, y'all? My name is Jonathan Dumas, and this is the Real Talk with Dumas podcast, where I have real conversations with the people I see every day because we don't know what we miss until we miss them. And y'all, I am really excited for our guest this week. And I did say guest. I have another two-person, three-person podcast. I don't know how you say that. Anyways, but wanted to share some dope ways to continue to support the show. Number one, like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Number two, follow RTWE on IG. And then finally, there are a couple of ways that you can support the show. The first one is a one-time donation and buy me a coffee fam, you know, because <laughs> I need it. And then also the second way by financially supporting the show is joining the Real Fam Patreon page because, yo, running the show, you financially supporting the show really, really helps because this thing ain't free. Also, big shout out to those who are already in the real fam. I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Those who are not in the real fam, you, you know how I feel about you. I love you too. But anyways, all right. Now on to my guests. This week, I am joined by Darren Dorsey and Valeriana Chakoti Bandua Estes. Darren holds expertise in violence prevention, policy advocacy, and organizational change management. Valeriana, pronouns she, her, is a former refugee from the country of Angola and is indigenous to the Ovimbundu tribe in the southern region of Angola. Valeriana has served as a human rights diplomat for the country of Angola in the Human Rights Committee, TEDx speaker, and has served in a variety of leadership capacities to interrupt anti-Blackness and in sexual violence in Black and immigrant communities for over 12 years. We talked about both of their work journeys, particularly their experiences working at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs, the investigative piece that was written on them and so many others, and the prevalence of anti-Blackness that occurs within social justice-oriented organizations. Y'all, this was a great conversation, um, insightful, deep. We tried to laugh because sometimes being Black folks in America, that's the only thing we can do because it's so frustrating. But sit back, enjoy the ride. All right, y'all, here is Valeriana and Darren. Hey, Darren. Hey, Valeriana. How y'all doing? Hey, Hello. Jonathan. Thanks for having us. Yes, of course. Yeah, I just read y'all's bio. And I love reading a long bio when those ones that I can't like, I can't cut it down all the way. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> y'all, I mean, I'm gonna give y'all y'all flowers, you know. But yeah, thank you so much for, you know, Darren, you reaching out, Valeriana, you coming in and, and wanting to talk about, you know, this this investigative piece that was written by MotherJones.com. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But what first, I will ask y'all a simple question. And the one I ask every guest is, who are y'all? You know, <laughs> who is Darren? Who is Valeriana? I know I read y'all's bios, but I'd love to have folks introduce themselves to the real fam. So go ahead and share um, with what you want. And either one of you can go. I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter. Darren, I insist you go first. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, I'll jump in. <laughs> My name is Darren Dorsey. I am a black man. I am a violence prevention educator and advocate. I'm a, a husband and a father. Right now, I, I, I actually just recently, about a month or so ago, transitioned to doing consulting work full time with my consulting firm that I run with my partner, Rooting Movements. And that is a culmination of my life experience and my work experience. Mm -hmm. We're very much focused on helping movement and movement organizations, social and political movement organizations connect with their roots, connecting with their values. Over time, I've, I've worked on a number of movements, whether it's the progressive movement, various movements to end violence, reproductive justice movements, and, and other, other places where I've, I've 
provided some support and whatnot and some advocacy, even thinking about like the cannabis, you know, cannabis equity and legalization movement Mm -hmm. and have seen the ways that various dynamics of whether it's, it's capitalistic pressure or other sort of dynamics show up in these movements and really co-opt them away from their original intent. Mm -hmm. So specifically in the movement to end gender-based violence, goes way back to the time when our folks were enslaved, goes back to Ida B. Wells, goes goes back to Rosa Parks and all of these folks that are involved in that in that history. But if you look at that movement today, there, there are a lot of ways that we strayed we have strayed away from that history. And so that's just one example of of how I try to help organizations kind of connect to that history and see that that you're not just doing this work in an isolated way in this moment, but you're a part of this broader movement. Again, various movements, whether it's civil rights, whether it's reproductive justice, all these various movements, it's really important for them to be conceptualized. So that's that's where my work has taken me. My experience at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs is a big part of that. That is, I think, the most glaring example I've seen of a movement organization really be co-opted by dynamics of, of racism, of, of transphobia and, and, and violence mm-hmm. and, and go against its mission and its work. No, thank you so much for sharing that. And I, yeah, I, we're going to, we're going to get into it. I'm very, very sure. But like the, even the, the use of the term violence, I've, I've learned that you have to even expand that because people think of like the physical mm-hmm. violence, but there's also the words that we use inflict like incredible harm to the to the people that we're working with and so like even those the violence in in that context and in and working environments too so thank you so much for sharing valeriana you want to want to tap sure, in and share who you sure. are yeah i'll start off by saying that in so many respects i and I, one of the reasons why i just insisted darren go first is that I, darren and i are really co-conspirators in this work yeah and while you know my journey definitely begins before you know darren and i even crossed paths being born into this world as a refugee and unbeknownst to me realizing much later on in my life, how this work called me so early on, because mm. I really come from a long line of freedom fighters mm. who historically really were fighting white supremacist oppression in my home country of the Republic of Angola. And I am indigenous to the Elvimbundu people. So thank you for getting uh, my tribe's name right. I really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. And I often think of how this work has really shaped me as to where I am. You know, at one point in my life, I saw my work as just like being a diplomat And there was an internal reckoning that I actually had when I actually did become a diplomat for a period of time where I realized, like, my calling is actually much deeper. It's this call. The calling that I have, I think, is really connected to grassroots led movements to end Mm. violence. Mm. And while I am a survivor as well of domestic violence and sexual violence, I will say that the intersectionality of racial violence was always showing up in my life. Mm. And at at a young age, I just remember having to always interrupt it, whether it be in a school system that was predominantly white and really, especially what my father was a really big proponent in, you know, him really championing me to be able to speak truth to power. Mm. And he always advised me, he always told me, you, you belong in spaces. And so when you see something unjust taking place, say something, do something about it. And, you know, my father has since uh, passed away, but that legacy lives on. And now 
being at a place where, you know, I do have my own racial equity firm called Necessary Interruptions, and I provide advice, uh, facilitation, support to organizations, businesses, individuals who are really on this quest to be more audacious and radical Mm -hmm. about what it means to actually operate from a Black liberation-based lens or lean in that direction. Mm -hmm. I think it's not enough to just be saying, to say the, you know, that those words of like, I'm anti-oppressive. What does that even mean? Yeah. I think we really need to get to the crux of like just the root of these issues and in 2018, when Darren and I crossed paths, I think little did we know the journey would be embarking on <laughs> literally, like, no joke. And I think that's such a, I think that's one of the things that I'm so thankful about in this entire journey is to actually have co-conspirators that there are times where we literally just talk about the journey that we've been on because it it really should be in, on a Netflix show. It really should be in a series because we really can't make this stuff up. And where I am now in my quest to continue doing consulting work, I also actually work with the Social Justice Fund Northwest, which is based out in Seattle. I'm their interim executive director. I work with an audacious group of co-conspirators as well who are predominantly BIPOC. And honestly, I think... Having been at a period of time in my life where I worked at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs and Darren and I were actually on this active quest to actually strengthen a Black liberation-based lens and really interrupt anti-Blackness in a movement that really prides itself in, you know, interrupting violence, I will say it definitely feels night and day in the work that I am doing now where it's really about mobilizing resources and getting it to like grassroots-led spaces. I, yeah, I am, if anything, very much excited about what is taking place, even this reckoning that's, I think, really turning the table over in nonprofit spaces in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that is actually the 2.0 of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Because if we think about the Me Too movement, the first time, you know, it, it came to our shores, it was more about what was happening externally in society. Mm-hmm. And now I think that this other reckoning that's taken place, even within this pandemic, has been about what's actually happening internally. Mm-hmm. What are the principles that are guiding organizations and workplaces? Why is there a hashtag called the great resignation? Yep. It, there's something taking place. Just clearly, all these people who don't necessarily even agree on the same kind of music, food, are all having this shared experience. Like, mm-hmm. we should explore that. And so I, my hope is that for our listeners today who stumble across this podcast or who are faithful followers... Um, who work in a place where they're actually noticing that something's taking you know, place, lean towards what is radical, what is audacious. And honestly, if anyone is on a quest to actually erase and silence your voice, it's an actually an indication of how oppressive that structure is. And my hope is in this conversation today, we really just continue to explore that. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, there's so many directions just based off of what you shared, Valeriana, that like I can comment on, ask further, you know what I'm saying? Right. But, but <laughs> it's just, it's just a lot. But, but the thing that I like that, that like immediately sticks out to me is like this, you had said something about like the intersection of race yeah. and, and, yeah. and gender, gender-based violence and how, and even what you said, Darren, of how like oftentimes like these movements of like, get co-opted mm-hmm. when they were originally started by black folks, by queer black folks even too, um, mm-hmm. to, to give to give proper flowers where they're due and then co-opted. Then all of a sudden, you know, you got where we're at now in the nonprofit space, white women leading a lot of these movements and you're like, what's going on? Right. <laughs> and then when you raise issues um, like y'all so valiantly did mm-hmm. and, and courageously did, honestly, mm-hmm. and audaciously to even use your words, like y- you somehow are the person that is like too, doing too much. Like y- mm-hmm. y'all are doing too much, like- 
whoa, whoa, we're not the bad guys. They're the bad guys. It's mm-hmm. the other white people. Or it's it's them. It's like this. It's the white man. It's it's like those folks. You know what I'm saying? And kind of like this cognitive dissonance that occurs. But yeah, I, I, I mean, let's. All right, let's 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 just get into it because y'all laid some great. I mean, y'all got into it. I'm gonna get into it with you. So I mean, let's let's just talk about it. Let's so go. so I read. I, I took some time and read the article. So um, mm-hmm. it's on mothers.com. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. And I would say if you're reading it, read all of it, sit with it. But like at times I had to take it in bursts. So because <laughs> I, I had like, say, well, one listening and like being black and, and just feeling that and having that secondary trauma from what y'all were experiencing mm-hmm. already, but also just like from my own experiences right. of feeling that, of being questioned, mm-hmm. of like my competence being questioned, of mm-hmm. my abilities, my skills and everything like that. So I mean, I think it's go ahead. It's, it's had that effect that effect on a number of people. Mm. Uh, that's something that yeah. Valeriana and I have, have heard quite a bit from folks. Is you know, like, yeah, I read it and my my stomach is turning. Yep. You know, or it yep. made me sick. I have yep. a headache. You yep. know, And yeah. so I think there are a lot of folks who are connecting with this article not just on an intellectual level, but but on a bodily level. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is what I felt when I went through something similar. I think mm-hmm. there. But there are a lot of folks that can read that. I think specifically black folks who've been in the nonprofit world yeah. can read that and say, you know, I can see myself at various points in this in this article. And I think that every time I hear that, I, I feel for those folks. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, because I think a lot of us have those, again, those experiences that haven't necessarily been processed or even acknowledged. Sometimes we're kind of gaslit into, well, maybe I was the one who was doing things wrong there mm-hmm. or something. I should have and stopped, so really, you know, I shouldn't have pressed exactly. so hard. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, maybe I, I should have been slower with asking for them to do the right thing, mm-hmm. which when you actually think about that statement, it's like, whoa, like that's, that's where we're at in nonprofit mm-hmm. social change mm-hmm. organizations. Mm-hmm. But it, that's definitely been a consistent thing is that this brings up a lot of, of memories and experiences for folks. So, you know, I think one thing to keep in mind is that this is an anomaly, Right. Um, this was able to happen because my NBA was time limited. Mm. So after that expired, I was able to talk to Mother Jones. I was able mm-hmm. to share this story. Mm-hmm. And then they were able to investigate that. Yep. These things are hidden under wraps. And even I think in doing the story, Madison Polly, the author, there were folks that she couldn't speak to that had similar mm. experiences that she wanted yeah. to use as sources that that said hey no that's a that's a risk for me i i've signed some stuff you know and so this is mm. this is so common and, and i think that's one thing that i hope that folks recognize as they're reading is that this is not an anomaly this is mm. happening at a number of, of similar organizations mm-hmm. absolutely yeah, and I, absolutely absolutely and i think and i think to what darren just speaks to is really the fact that i just i pause oftentimes when there are people I have never met <laughs> in this work who have reached out to me because they read the Mother Jones article. Mm. And they've told me they've had to have a glass of wine afterwards. They, or they have told me they've, been, they've just had to go to sleep right after it. Mm. It's the fact that people have actually shared information with myself and Darren that the way in which this was even told, it was like an account by account by account by account. Yep. yep. And, and the fact that they are, I would say in many respects, um, anti-Black deniers who are in this story as well. Those who are definitely 
uh, really perpetuating um, white supremacy mm-hmm. and making us, you know, really do the gymnastics in our mind of like, did this happen? Did this not? We were being gaslit so much. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I will say is that as traumatizing as this experience has been, it, I also feel a sense of freedom at the same time. Hmm. because it's one thing when a narrative has been told from a specific kind of lens, and specifically in my case, my NDA wasn't time-limited. It was for life. Hmm. So had Darren, being the co-conspirator that he is, not spoken up and actually spoken to this reporter, it wouldn't have actually, I would even say, yielded the results that it did, because by the time Madison Polly was speaking with folks, Wixap was, I think, in this real space of oh, wow, the word's getting out kind of thing. We don't mm-hmm. want to appear this way. And this whole performativeness of like, okay, okay, well, the NDAs, you know, they're non-existent at this point. Mm-hmm. We'll even testify publicly and say like, yeah, we're very much against that. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, just really a symptom of what takes place when white supremacy is centered on a board, centered in an organization. And the fact that punitiveness or the idea that When a Black person is crying out and saying, hey, I've experienced this harm, this is what's taken shape, you are now seen as the problem, Mm -hmm. and a punitive measure will come against you in your life. And I think of the events of 2020 at the same time. That was the year when George Floyd was murdered. We all saw that on TV. Mm -hmm. That was the year when Breonna Taylor was also murdered. Amud Abari was also murdered. The thing of what happened at Wixap was that they did not anticipate a civil rights chapter was unfolding. Literally, it was just a couple weeks. I mean, and I and I will say that that in many respects, as wild as that is, there's something actually very divine when you are a black person having a real life experience or a crisis that has come onto your shores and you feel isolated because the pandemic was happening also at the same time. Yeah. So it was a really good cover for an organization to like, let's erase these black folks Mm -hmm. and continue business as usual because they were definitely touting a strong narrative of like, no person is greater than this organization. But on the contrary, here we are in 2022. And I would say no institution, no business, no organization, no community group that thrives off of the idea or the ideology of anti-Blackness is worth continuing to exist. Yeah, Because yeah. that means that Black labor, Black harm is a constant thing. And it's a current scene which they're moving in and breathing in. And I and my hope is that anyone who's in, involved in the movement and gender-based violence or even working in some sphere of no, the nonprofit world will really awaken to the fact that this is happening everywhere. It's not just happening in these big name organizations. It's happening in these small organizations. It's mm. happening with conversations with funders. It's happening in, in spaces with folks who are responsible for moving resources. Mm-hmm. They're controlling a certain narrative. And I, again, I really also just want to give a shout out to folks who, like, despite what was taking place in 2020, reached out to Darren and I and knew in many respects that if they were even publicly seen with being associated to us in that period of time, because here we were in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. predominantly white space, that they could have been repercussions. But they chose to actually take a stance and go, hey, I support you and I believe you. Mm -hmm. And I really want to speak to that courage because I think that that's the courage that needs to continue to rise in the civil rights chapter. Because there's no way that you can be out there in the streets marching when you see some unknown black person that you know has been murdered and you're like, yes, black lives matter. But when the truth comes, when it comes to your door and someone's telling you you're being anti-black, you are more offended with being called anti-black than the racism or the anti-blackness that you continue to do. Yep. Yep. Which is like very, very (laughs) telling one from 
an organizational standpoint as to what to your to your point, Valeriana, of just like it's just it's just so telling, you know what I'm saying? Of mm-hmm. like what it what it has been perpetuated, what and let's just be face it, like what yeah. when we worked in those nonprofit spaces, what we perpetuated, what we participated mm-hmm. in. And and you can only do, you can only fix, you can only change what with what you know and the knowledge you have. And so right. again, like once you are faced with those truths and those very difficult, hard truths, what are you gonna do next? You know what I'm saying? Like what is the next right. step for you to like an action that you're gonna be taking? Like, are you going to be the ones that are in that room and saying like, yo, like this, this is wrong. You know what I'm saying? And like, I think that there's this misconception and, and there's been this glamorization of folks who have been in the movement, whether it be, I think social media is to blame for this, but like all the different movements that have like gone Mm -hmm. about and thinking that like you say something and you're going to get a bunch of cookies or like kudos for -hmm. standing up and telling the truth. But like, as we witnessed with y'all's story, like the realities, <laughs> uh, the day-to-day realities of this is like, you're blackballed, you're called a liar, you're not mm-hmm. believed, you're isolated. Right. I know, I remember even from my own experiences, like I went through severe anxiety and depression, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, because it's just, there's just so much to it. And like, there's so much questioning that exists there, even when you're doing the right thing and you know you're doing the right thing. It's just like, I got to live, I got to eat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But like when those realities hit you, you know what I'm saying? That's when it comes. That's when it, that's when it happens. What are you going to do then? Exactly. You know what I'm that's saying? That's a good question. And, and I think a lot of people don't think of that question. Or hmm, 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 hmm. let me be real. I think a lot of people see that question and choose to do the opposite, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and go with the self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is like, I'm not knocking anybody that does that. I'm not going to knock them too hard. I will side eye them. Right. But uh, okay, but I but 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 the thing is, is like you know, you got to live, you got to eat, um, because telling the truth and and standing in that truth holistically and wholeheartedly is very hard and very difficult. Mm-hmm. But like for me, I, I I just can't. And I had a great conversation with my friend Isaiah Young, and this man knows because um, he's lost many a job um, for doing mm-hmm. this. But like, just like it's hard to still be in that space when you know the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like. You're a liar. <laughs> like, like you're you're a liar when you look at those organizations and just like see those value Oof. statements and mission statements. Is like you're a liar. Facts. You're Facts. a liar. Right. Um, I, I think you know, like yeah. folks often, like you said, folks go to this idea of self preservation and like I'm just trying to keep my job. And I think you know we can all acknowledge the the reality of that that we got to put food on the table mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But we, I think we also have to think of like to what end. Because I find mm-hmm. myself in a nonprofit, in an organization that's committed mm-hmm. to ending violence. If, if I want right. to self-preserve myself, there's a number of ways that I can do that and not take up that space. You know, mm-hmm. and let somebody who is willing to take those risks, who is willing to take those sacrifices, which I think should be sort of a, a given when it comes to doing activism work, doing social change work, is that, you know, you are going to have to put yourself out there, you know, Taking up that space and just preserving yourself again, I, I I get it on a you know on a one to one or on a one time basis or something like that. But again, if you find yourself sitting in one of these organizations and saying I'm committed to this, I'm committed to ending this, to making the world a better place, to then uh, avoid those opportunities to make your workplace better, to to make the organization that is committed to these things consistent with what they're trying to put out in the world. That's an opportunity that that I just think you you have to take, and I think we have we have too many folks in these types of organization these days that just see it as a career, 
that see it as, hey, I'm, I'm here right now and I'm trying to get there and this is my pathway as opposed to this is my issue, these are my values, and this is the change that I want to make, and, and here's how I'm going to do it through this organization or this position. Again, we've got too many folks who are more focused on on their own career and, and whatnot than, than the change that they're trying to actually make in the world. Mm, that's a great point. And even yeah. talking about your organization, Rooting Movements, it's like reminding folks of the mission, their values, and contextualizing like what we're doing, the work that you're doing. And it, and somebody told me that before, it's like reminding them of their mission, reminding them of their values. And like, if their values and missions are not aligning with the, the work that they're actually doing, then like, at that point, like <laughs> the cognitive dissonance that exists there is just like, it, it, it might not even be worth like staying at that organization. You know what I'm saying? Right. And that just makes me think of the fact that if you look at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assaults programs, um, movements from the time that, that Valeriana and I left the organization or were pushed out of the organization, a lot of that has been focused on hiding the racism, on saying, hey, we're anti-racist, on consulting with independent contractors that are Black, but not having any staff that are Black because those folks don't want to join the organization, um, and doing all of these various things to appear that they're not, that they didn't commit this violence, that they didn't push us out. And that's really what they've been, you know, that's what they've been doing. Their work has very much suffered because of that, because they're not focused on their mission, because they're focused so much on appearing to, to be anti-racist, et cetera. And one thing I often remind folks of is that these are tax dollars. Mm-hmm. Valerian and I have a sense of, of the size of that organization, and this is hundreds of thousands of dollars that's wow. going to wow. people's salaries, that's going to their professional development, all these things and then not going into the communities because we have this nonprofit industrial complex that where the organizations are not rooted in their values, where, again, we have folks in these positions that are more worried about their careers than, than making actual change. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I think the troubling part about it is, and I think, you, like you said earlier, Jonathan, it's, like, it's the lying piece, hmm. the piece of like them really convincing themselves. Like, it's no, like we're, we're outliers, like that's... That's not that's not what we meant or always like assume best intent. Hmm. I have to remind folks intentions cannot be seen, but they can be felt. Mm-hmm. And so you have to go over time when you somebody has come to you and has told you you have been involved in this racially violent behavior instead of actually gaslighting them. And instead of like standing on the defensiveness might be a good time to actually do some self-examination. I often think back to the fact that I wonder what it would have looked like if Wixup had really centered in 2020 a survivor-centered approach mm-hmm. and actually examined like, hey, Darren and Valerian are bringing up these points. The commonality is here. They're two Black people mm-hmm. and they're having the same lived experience. They're being targeted. There's something there. And the disappointing piece is it wasn't that the, the actions were just solely led by white folks. Mm-hmm. There were BIPOC folks. There were mm-hmm. brown folks mm-hmm. who had so much proximity to whiteness. And I'm just going to name that. No, no, no. Name that, it. Name it. <laughs> it is. it To me, that is one of the most infuriating things. Mm-hmm. Infuriating things. Because I look, at the, I look at it this way. When you look at the landscape of history, and let's go all the way back, let's all the way it. back, back, yep. back, back. You look at the time of slavery, right? There's a reason why when we talk, even as black folks, and we talk about the fact that there were certain folks who were subjected to harsh labor on the fields, and then there's folks who were put in the, the big house, and then you had the one person who was essentially 
cold, like the Uncle Tom, you couldn't really trust them because they were the overseer. Mm-hmm. What has bothered me about even the wording of BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous, Brown, folks of color or people of color, when it comes to a collective sense of like, yeah, we're all experiencing racial oppression. I hear language about that all day. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that they have been numerous upon numerous t- of times as a dark-skinned Black woman where I've walked in the room and there, they, there are, I would say, some outliers who have definitely situated themselves in which they find the approximation to whiteness, meaning they are a person of color, but they will, in many respects, I think, behave like a chameleon. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if the culture is or the, the room is predominantly people of color that look like them or or folks who are black, indigenous and brown. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's who I am. That's who I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But then the moment it's like, oh, they're around white folks. It's like, I got to switch. Now, that's not the same as necessarily code switching, because I can understand that there are instances where there are environments that are so violent that all the folks of color have to navigate language differently. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about those that you know that if you live in a different period of history, they would have definitely run to Mesa and reported on you. They would have reported on you. And I find that to be actually even more violent than white supremacy itself, because white supremacy, you can see that a mile away. But what I don't care for as a dark skinned black woman is being in spaces with people who will say to you all day, like, yes, I, yeah, I understand the language, even come to you to complain about the organization that they are part of. <laughs> they will even tell you, they will name all of the players. They'll say, don't trust this person. Don't trust this. Don't trust this. Yep. But when push comes to shove, when the time comes to speak up, they are actually moving with the lens of actually being cowards. Mm -hmm. And I think that because we are in a civil rights chapter where we are literally being murdered for lesser things, Mm -hmm. lesser things, as we've seen, I don't think we can even afford to even move in that trajectory. I often think of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. I think of the fact that they, they lived at a period of time where it was like, you don't know if you just being on the, on, on on the wrong side of, of town could cost you your life. Yeah. And then there are folks who will literally will occupy spaces of power will say all day, yes, I am a BIPOC person. And, and then they're part of this violence. Yeah. And I think of uh, what specifically took place at Wixap on the day when there was a board president who was a woman of color marched in the office with a white man. And they came unannounced, told us to essentially hand over our laptops, give them the office keys. I mean, it was something out of what you see in a movie Mm. where you're like, I mean, am I going to be arrested? What have I done? Kind of scenario. And the fact that that specific woman of color looked at me and said, you were going to have to look for another job and was reveling, reveling Mm. in anti-blackness. But yet when everything started playing itself out and this person ended up being the shortest lived board president only a month long because all these chaotic things took shape the that entire board which is a group of what four people all quit mm. they all quit and to this day two years on have not publicly rectified the harm hmm. like i'm gonna just run my mouth like i'm gonna keep running my mouth because yeah. they were on a quest to erase me and mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not cool with that because i think of any and i think of any and every black girl black woman a black person who has has been an instance where somebody tried to erase them. Mm. I remember at that period of time how violent it was. There were instances where I literally was going home and when I would comb my hair, my hair was falling out of my head. Mm-hmm. That is how stressed out my body had like, it was actually showing me signs that if I stay here, something like I, I could, I could die. No, yeah. Die. yeah. 
Yeah. And there was no care. There was absolutely no care. And what's wild to me is now that Darren and I specifically are essentially telling folks, don't just tell us in private you support us. Mm-hmm. If you've done something harmful, rectify it. Yep. Rectify it. I think people need to stop expecting black folks to be moving with a gradient of forgiveness. But when it comes to actually rectifying harm, people get people got amnesia all of a sudden. They don't yeah. they don't want it, they don't want to go to the forefront and name what they've done. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we're holding folks accountable. I, I mean, even going back to the funders who were complicit in this, mm-hmm. even going back to the co-executive director who I led with, Michelle Dixon Wall, who once uh, Madison Polly, the reporter, started asking her questions, what did she do? Gotta resign. Can't handle this. It's 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 a it's a period of, of time in history where this reckoning is loud and it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And, and my hope is that if anyone who's listening to this, who is connected to Wixap or is connected to the movement again and ending gender based violence and knows of people who are moving in this trajectory, this is the time to actually speak up. Because once the, the I would say uh, the chapter flips over and even more folks get named publicly, what will your legacy be? Mm-hmm. Do, do, like I, I often think of the folks who are involved in this. You're Googleable now. Yeah. That when you when people Google your name, it's not just going to be your LinkedIn that pops up. Yeah. It's going to be all this anti-blackness that you were involved in. And, and, and you and you ran away. Mm-hmm. You essentially have just tried to hide from the fact that like public accountability is, should not know your name. Yeah. But yet you came with your full chest and we're telling Darren and I we weren't having anti-black experiences. I think of this white woman, Michelle Dixon Wall, who told me and Darren several times when we complained about experiencing anti-blackness, she would laugh in our faces and say, oh, you just have a different star sign from this other person. There are how is that yep. playing out for her in her life? Okay. Yep. <laughs> I know. I know you probably want to yep. want to pause on that one. <laughs> Why would you tell black people who are having an anti-black experience? Mind you, these folks will, will never know that because that's yeah. that's not th- that's not their identity. But literally saying to our faces, "Oh, come on, it's not that. They, you just have a different star sign." All right, y'all. Uh, I think that's where we'll stop for this first half of the conversation. Um, I learned from a few episodes ago that when an episode is jam-packed like this one, to go ahead and split it up into two. So the second episode is already up. You can catch the rest of my conversation with Darren and Valeriana wherever you get your podcasts now. This podcast was produced by myself, Jonathan Dumas. Additional production help by the incomparable Lindsay Dumas with music by the oh-so-talented Mr. Tony Deras. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Till next time, y'all. Peace.